Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, well, I'm just really excited to talk about these scriptures with you and some of the current events. Absolutely. It's still quite a time to be an American right now. It's quite a time to be alive. We are, like, I get the keen impression, and I feel like somebody has already said as much, but it definitely feels like we're living in the middle of history right now and with all the things that are going on. And it's just kind of crazy, man. Like we're experiencing a lot of history within the church, within the country, and that we get to talk about both is uh, just kind of wild, man. And uh, hopefully talk about where the relevance is in the scriptures and also talk about what our expectations are, particularly as marginalized members of the church with what's going on. So where shall we begin? Um, Do we want to begin from the top chronologically speaking? Would that be all right? Right, yeah, with President Nelson's second statement. Second statement, yes. So for those of you who are not aware, the church and uh, the NAACP came out with a joint statement addressing racism. So this will be the church's second statement in a week where they got to address racism. Now, there have been some substantial improvements, in my opinion, from President Nelson's statement last Monday. They said George Floyd's name, which is, you know, something they didn't do before. Right. And they condemned his death and the senseless conditions under which it occurred. They spoke generally of the role of governments and businesses in rooting out racism. And uh, that was more or less the highlights for me as far as the improvements. Did you catch any other improvements, Derek? The other thing I think they did well was they didn't make they didn't do this whole homogenized colorblind thing. They mm-hmm. said differences are real and we should celebrate those differences and be one with those right. differences and we're not all the same. And I think that's important to speak out because so many members of the church want to do this colorblind thing and like, oh, we're all the same and like race is irrelevant, but if but then they don't see the patterns, they don't see the disparity, they don't see what's actually going on, and they also don't see the gifts that diversity brings to right, right. the church. Okay, so I got the statement. There is a mention of uh, property destruction and looting in there again, so that is still in there. And I'm going to get to that in a second, but there were some improvements made from President Nelson's first statement, and I did want to lift those up before I went into criticizing it, which is exactly what I'm going to do now. So in my opinion, the church still didn't go far enough. And and that's super disappointing when you consider the church is capable of giving specific details about what exactly it expects from its members. They, they know how to put substance and specificity behind what they deem important. We've seen them do this. We've seen... We right, saw- with... Prop 8. Yeah, with Prop 8. We saw them do it with baking cake for gay couples. We saw it with, as you said, Prop 8, marriage for for gay folks. We saw them do it with natural disasters. We saw them do it with marijuana and conversion therapy. We we saw them do this six months ago with uh, freaking uh, coffee and tea and energy drinks. And we saw them do it with the name of the church. So... I'm looking at this saying the church is able to be specific and blunt and direct. The church is able, they can condemn in certain terms 
the evils of police brutality and white supremacy. That is within their capability. In fact, I'm, I'm willing to go as far as to say they've more than likely heard at least one of those terms, white supremacy or police brutality, in their meetings with the NAACP. Yet, they're not, for whatever reason, naming either of those things. So, I'm left to conclude that either the church doesn't really believe that police brutality and white supremacy are real things, or... They know that their members, and this is what I think, they know that their members, they know how their members feel about such phrases, and they don't want to offend their sensibilities. So, both are problematic. Either way, this is problematic, and that needs to be addressed. I think it's the uh, the second, because within the body of the church, with, within America, remember... We're not a an American church. We're a global church, mm-hmm. but we're talking about America right now. Within America, you've got a, a large body of very patriotic and nationalistic people. We've got uh, police. There's just a lot of constituents that our leaders feel that they have to coddle. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how to, to speak out against white supremacy in a way that won't alienate. But whole, the whole point of a prophet is to alienate the people. Say that. Right? When yep. they need to hear something, mm-hmm. when they need to hear a word from the Lord of condemnation, it needs to be clear and specific. Mm-hmm. Even if it makes the people mad at you, if you're a prophet, you got to step up and do your job. That's the whole point. Right. If people aren't speaking up against the prophet, then perhaps they don't really know what he stands for. Like my, like my motto's always been, if you're not getting persecuted for what you believe, then I don't think people know what you believe because everybody's a critic of something that you're doing. And, you know, I'm kind of validating that right now by being critical of what the prophet says, but that nobody has really taken any real offense to what the prophet has said about racism just really bugs me. I I, I want the prophet to be criticized for his demonstrably anti-racist stance, but he hasn't really taken that. And uh, that brings me to NAACP's evaluation of their partnership with the LDS Church. So we, I know we both saw the article in the Trib where uh, Wilbur Colomb, the special counsel to the NAACP president, said that he hasn't seen very much progress on projects in the two years that, that we've been partners. Right. The initiatives have centered mostly on education and employment, from what I can tell, and self-reliance and stuff like that. The NAACP... At least this is what uh, Colomb said. They're looking forward to the church doing more to undo the 150 years of damage they did by how they treated African-Americans in the church. Close quote. Wow. Yeah. So he said that. He also said he wanted to, to see them do more with regard to their endorsement of how African-Americans were treated throughout the country, including segregation and Jim Crow laws. So first of all, we got to acknowledge this might be the plainest and most stark criticism we've seen from the NAACP of the church in recent in recent years. I mean, the church just straight up did not embrace the civil rights movement. Ezra Taft Benson was a critic of the civil rights movement. I mean, I also want to lift up, I don't want to do this whole not all white people thing, uh-huh. but I want to lift up that there's been a, 
minority tradition within the church of being pro civil rights. Like right. Orson Pratt spoke out against Brigham Young and said, "We, you know, it's okay for African Americans to vote. It's okay for African Americans to hold the priesthood." Right, right. And now he was voted down. And I think a similar thing happened with the civil rights movement. Yes, there's Ezra Taft Benson. I don't want to minimize that. But then you also have George Romney who under pressure from the apostles at the time said nope i'm going to march for civil rights anyway and i'm going to as the governor of michigan work for civil rights Mm -hmm. and i think there's going to be that that give and take and this tension Mm -hmm. within the church and we've got tension Mm -hmm. around lgbt issues and women's issues now and there's always going to be a faithful remnant within the church that are speaking the word of truth Mm -hmm. despite what the leadership Uh, is saying. Yeah, definitely. I already talked on the show about the problematic nature of the current projects that are most to the front with regard to what the NAACP and the LDS Church are working on. But I want to focus on what the church can do and should do and model that after what Alma and the Sons of Mosiah did after they converted to the Lord. We, We don't have any record of them publicly apologizing to the church, though that could have very well been part of the process. But what we see them do for the church that they had persecuted was be some of its strongest advocates until their deaths. Similarly, I would expect for the leaders of the church to show up for black causes. I would expect them to condemn systemic racism and police brutality to name those things specifically. I I would want them to be some of the staunchest advocates and allies for black people. That, that's what repentance would look like to me. They can keep their checkbook. I don't think the NAACP is like just based on their history. I don't think they're looking for money from the church. I would really just like them to show up. And that's what I think the NAACP wants is just for the church to show up. They don't have to get it. They just got to be present in our struggle. I want to see them march with us like George Romney did and what Mitt Romney did. You know, I, they, I, I want to see them. I, I wanted to see the leaders at George Floyd's funeral. Like that would have been nice to see. I I want them to speak directly to the issues of anti-black racism, systemic racism, homophobia and sexism in the church, as well as in the world. I I want them to acknowledge their role in the perpetuation of every single one of those things, too. They don't they don't got to do it all at once, but they got to take some more deliberate steps like even the NFL and NASCAR. Two organizations that you know have racists in their fan bases. Oh no! They are, yeah. Being, yeah, they're being more disruptive in their anti-racism than the church is, and that's just embarrassing. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, man. Just wait. Can I ask you a few questions? Yeah. Do you ever feel ashamed to be a member of this church that doesn't fully have your back? Sometimes I do. Like, and I don't even know that shame is the right word because I've embraced the church's shortcomings so much to the point where I'm just like, okay, this is what the church is. This is who we are. It's my responsibility to do something. I think I would feel more shame if I wasn't actively trying to change that. You know what Uh I'm saying? Um, But yeah, every now and again, I'm going to be in public when some, and somebody will ask me about these things that the church is doing, but I have no problem acknowledging the church's problematic past with race. I have no problem acknowledging their problematic present with uh, the, the LGBTQ community, because anyone who knows me knows that I'm actively working to dismantle the homophobia, the sexism and the racism. So I don't know that shame is wholly the right word for me, but I I definitely feel some kind of way that I'm part of an organization that is doing less than the NFL and NASCAR. Here's another question. This partnership with the NAACP, I think 
it has the potential to really uplift and include black voices. Yes. But do you think yes. but do you think it's turning out to be the 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 corporate equivalent of oh I have a black friend? That's how it looks, certainly. Like for the last two years, that's how it's operated and that's how it looks. It looks very performative. And uh, for evidence of this, I would definitely point to the last two statements that uh, President Nelson and the joint statement with the NAACP have looked like. They look very performative. We've been at this for two years with the NAACP in times of great racial tension in our country. So I do think there's, I, I definitely lean that way. I definitely think there's an element of truth to what you are saying. Um, but I would hope that the church is just really slow. Like, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the church is just taking a really long time to fully grasp what it means to be anti-racist and what it means to be an ally. But it's definitely, based on their actions over the last two years during their partnership, it's definitely reading like, oh, I have a black friend, so this can validate who we are right now in this moment of time with regard to our anti with regard to our anti-racism. So, uh, yeah, I do think it's like that because that's what it looks like. That's exactly what it looks like. My biggest thing about the, Oh, they're taking it slow. We just need to give it time and patience. We've had almost literally the same conversation about race in America for the past 50 to 60 years. Like the main issues are the same thing. The main divisions are still the same. The main talking points are still the same. Like, what more time do you need? I agree, man. I hate to quote MLK again, which is every white person's favorite black person, but... Um, his letter from Birmingham jail speaks literally to today about the white moderate. I think we white folks in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are doing the whole, let's take it easy. We need more time. Like we want order rather than justice. We want, uh, you know, the absence of tension rather than a positive presence of, of real peace. Like he's literally talking to us today. And that was 1963. And that, yeah. and he also addressed the whole thing. He even in 1963, people, the white moderate was saying, "Well, just give it time," mm-hmm. and you know, we have to take this slow and gradual. I like it's been over 50 years, and the conversations around police brutality and prison and segregation, although segregation has taken on different forms, of course, but right. um, economic right. injustice, educational mm-hmm. disparities. I mean, it bugs me even more than the LGBT conversation. Like you would think I would be more mad about the LGBT disparities in the church, but I'm not because, well, I don't want to get into it, but I, <sighs> well, here we go. Um, that's just all I want to say is we should really uplift the conversation and we know better we should know better like we in the church we who are white in the church especially leaders we need to get over ourselves and just do the right thing Mm -hmm. and that's i love what zeezrom did and we get can get to that later but zeezrom actually apologized he named his privilege he named what he did wrong he and he fixed it Mm -hmm. and hopefully Mm -hmm. that can be a model um for us definitely move into the to the mweg statement Oh, certainly. Let's uh, see what they got to say. Okay, so this is the Mormon Women for Ethical Government statement. And they put out uh, this really good statement. Obviously, no statement's going to be perfect, but I think this is a lot better relative to some of the other statements we've seen. And this is the Mormon Women for Ethical Government. And it's important to uplift women's voices on this. And so I just want to name that uh, 
that priority. But they call for justice and accountability. Accountability is a good word that has been missing from some of these other statements. Mm-hmm. Um, they name the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and countless other black Americans. And it names that it's at the hand of law enforcement officers and self-deputized citizens, which is the what they're calling vigilantes mm-hmm. with a gun and, and an ego. Right. They talk about pr- police brutality. What's really interesting is they name the complicity of our own church because they talked about the sin of racism and oppression and it says, unchecked, this sin has tarnished many otherwise noble endeavors, including our own religion. We don't want to do what I do when I'm walking down the sidewalk. You know what I do when I'm walking down the sidewalk and I trip? What you do? What you do, Derek? Okay, I'm walking down the sidewalk, I trip. And then I start a little jog to make it look like, oh, I just did that on purpose and I didn't make a mistake. And then I jog for a few (laughs) meters and then I go back to walking like, ooh, like I think that's what we do is we try Mm -hmm. to just pretend that we didn't have a major problem. Right. Right. And then I think what it, it did uplift uh, the I the covenant to mourn with one another and bear one another another's burdens which these statements that we've seen before haven't done enough of, like you said. Mm. And then it talks about using all of our voices to ensure that our elected officials and sworn law enforcement confront systemic racism. Mm. And then uh, it, it actually says Black Lives Matter in the last paragraph. Equality and ju- justice and equality beget peace. Black lives matter. They must matter to us all or the American experiment has failed. I'm just glad that they said those three words, Black Lives Matter, because that would alienate, if President Nelson said Black Lives Matter, you know that would alienate half the church. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Like, And that's probably why he yeah, hasn't man. said it. Probably. Probably. You know, I've seen people online say Christ treated everyone the same. Now, these people haven't done their Bible study, no. and they haven't done it with me. They have not read the Beatitudes either. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it's not just the Beatitudes. Almost every interaction with Christ— right. We see that Christ absolutely treated different people differently. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of a pastoral ministry is to re- re- meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. And he almost everything he did or said in the in the Gospels, he's either comforting the afflicted or afflicting mm-hmm. the comfortable, one or the other. And it's very clear which of the two he's talking mm-hmm. about. And the gospel writers quite deliberately bring that out. Mm-hmm. And what I love about that is that the, presupp- the presuppositions of the writers, as we see them in the Bible itself, have the power to regrind the presuppositional lenses of their readers. Like, if we truly take it to heart, we will be changed, and we will look at the world with fresh eyes that have been formed and shaped by a Christ-shaped ministry. Mm. And here's one that a lot of people might not know. It's from Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 15 and 16. It's almost like the whole leaving the 99 sheep for the one, but this is Mm -hmm. a little bit different. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord is um, imaged as a shepherd here. The Lord says, I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost And bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. Um, Now, the fat 
is is means well fed well fed mm-hmm. okay so he's saying i'm i'm going to keep treat treat these sheep differently the sheep that need me i'm going to take care of them the ones that are all prosperous and and well fed and strong i'm going to quote feed them with judgment and that's what they're going to get hmm. and like these all lives matter people they haven't read ezekiel well anyway no. i'll just let let that sit with people and and um Maybe any do you did you have any reactions about the Mormon women for ethical government statement? The fact that they said Black Lives Matter is powerful, and as are many other things that they said in that statement, which actually speak the names of the people who died, that actually name systemic racism, and talks about the responsibility or sorry the accountability mm-hmm. uh, that people need to have uh, both in our systems of government and in our church. I value all of that, and I'm so glad that somebody said that stuff. Um, I also want to transition that into the the statement that was made by BYU football. I don't know if you saw the video, Derek. I did see the video. I think okay. I thought it, the video was good for what it was. For what it was, exactly. And I don't want to raise that video up too much because still at the end of the day, it's not enough but the fact that a BYU organization said Black Lives Matter, you know, that's pretty significant. An organization affiliated with the church said Black Lives Matter. And the reason I want to lift that up is because the thing that stood out most to me about that video was what was written in the comments section of that video. I went to both the comments section on both Twitter and on Facebook to see what people were saying about this video. And there was a lot of angry people. There was a lot of angry people. Like, what really got to me was how accurate of a representation of our church the comment section was. There was people in the church that were certainly, uh, they were certainly encouraged by this message, by BYU football saying Black Lives Matter, but there were a lot more people saying things like all lives matter or saying that I don't even know if the church is true anymore, if this is the direction they're going like that's whoa, whoa. You're saying that people would rather choose their prejudice. Yes. Than their testimony. Yes. Yes. Like when they have to pick between the two, they're going to deny Christ. That's basically it right there. And this, this is a whole conversation for a whole nother day. I got so many thoughts about this, Derek, with people choosing you know, their comfort or their prejudice over Christ. I I have so many thoughts about this, uh, but that's a conversation for another day. I I just wanted to acknowledge, though, that there are so many people who are so bothered by the phrase alone, Black Lives Matter, that they are willing to condemn the prophets. They're willing to condemn uh, the church. They're willing to condemn BYU. They're like, oh my gosh, I was a season ticket holder for 20 years. No more. Or get ready to never play football again. Or I can't believe this is the direction the church is going. Like at your own risk, I would definitely encourage anybody to go on Facebook or go on Twitter and see what people are saying in the comments and in the mentions. It's really discouraging to see just Mm -hmm. how negatively members of the church are reacting to this video. It's, It's absurd. And it's, again, very discouraging. This all goes to show you that, mind you, Two-thirds of the men or two-thirds of the people in the church that have served missions went abroad. About two-thirds. 
yet we still seem to respond so poorly to any kind of multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. We still respond poorly to any kind of othering. Simply serving a mission, and I've seen a lot of people bypass accountability and responsibility with their missions, but people are basically saying, oh, I served a mission in Brazil or in Africa or in some other place where there are people that aren't white. So I can't be racist or I can't believe negatively about people of uh, different colors. But this really goes to show you that simple proximity in your distant past to people of a different race is not going to exclude you from racism. Exactly. And part of what people don't realize is that to a large extent, the missionary program is implemented as a colonial program. Yes. Like Thank we, you for saying we have, that. Uh, it, that's no different than, you know, colonists coming to the United States and interacting um, with indigenous people or or interacting with enslaved Africans. And that's proximity. Like, like the proximity itself doesn't fix your racism. Correct. Yeah, but I'm just so frustrated that these people would choose their prejudice. I, I hate to give people more of a pass on LGBT issues because that's not even, we're not even caught up to, like the official position is not even caught up to where it should be. Whereas on race, the official position largely is right uh, on paper where it should be. And and are we haven't even caught up to that. I heard just the other mm -hmm. day that there are people that the general authorities still get mad letters from members of the church complaining about 1978 and how that was wrong and how I mean like that just boggles mm -hmm. me. It points out the hypocrisy of all these people, especially the anti-gay people love to say that they follow the prophet and that they're loyal to the church. But the moment we get that revelation, we will really see where their loyalties lie. Yep. It will not be with Christ and, and Christ's servants. Just wait. Just mm -hmm. wait. I promise you. Because mm -hmm. um, we've seen mm -hmm. this, obviously, yes, sir. F for the past 42 years. Well, speaking of the uh, last 42 years, there's also been a campaign to uh, right Salt Lake, a campaign to uh, right Salt Lake with uh, the experiences of Black Latter-day Saints and also propose some anti-racism training in the church. Uh, that has been an effort led by Melody Jackson, a future PhD student and a graduate of uh, Brigham Young University. Um, she's gonna be doing her work on the Afro-Brazilian experience from what I can tell. But, uh, yeah, she's encouraged Black Latter-day Saints to write to Salt Lake with uh, the experience, with their own experiences and also encourage the leadership to propose an anti-racist mm -hmm. training of some kind. And she's also encouraged white members of the church to post Black Lives Matter and also stand in solidarity with the black members of the church and black people in general. So that's a campaign that has really picked up a whole lot of steam. And if you guys haven't heard about it yet, I definitely encourage you to uh, check it out. There's more details on our Facebook page about it. I think we posted about it uh, a couple of days ago. You can see a little bit more about it. And there's this new story that's circulating about it as well. But uh, the details of how to participate in that effort are also on our Facebook page. And uh, some may also be in that news story that's been circulating about the trip. Yeah, and I want to talk about another one of these hypocrisies. Okay. And I think one a, a lot of liberal and progressive Mormons are a little bit uncomfortable with the family proclamation, and I get why, right? But there's some th uh -huh. things I really like about the family proclamation. 
let's look at the last two sentences of the proclamation. It says, Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. We call upon responsible citizens and officers of government everywhere to promote the, those measures designed to maintain and strengthen the family as the fundamental unit of society. Now, it talks about mm-hmm. the family, but what about black families? You know, there are so many things structurally in our world, um, economically, access to education, discrimination. Like if, if we have um, black fathers incarcerated or killed by cops, that destroys the family. I mean, hello, mm-hmm. is, can you get any clearer a witness of the effects of the systemic injustice on the black community? I mm-hmm. absolutely, this isn't even stretching it. This is literally what the family proclamation is speaking to. We need to uplift uh, the family. In order to do that, we have to uplift black families. We have to make sure that there's equity and access to education and economic justice and jobs and mm-hmm. and all these things because racism affects the family. Like It affects the community. I think the family proclamation we can use as one of the strongest condemnations of systemic injustice. Now, I don't know why all those homophobes scream about, oh, we've got a proclamation, a proclamation, we've got this proclamation, and then they don't use it Hmm. when it actually speaks to a life or death issue. Like, police brutality breaks up the family. Look at look at George Floyd's family. Why don't people use... It's hip, hypocrisy to use this proclamation against the homos. It doesn't even mention homos anywhere. <laughs> it does no. not actually admit that there exist gay people and what gay people mm. should do. It doesn't even say that. It does not speak directly to the experience of gay people. But it does speak directly to the experience. It says... And it's not just a... A faith document it's a political document too because it calls upon citizens and officers of government to do things that keep families safe i mean mm-hmm. like literally this is literally what a prophet of the lord has said and no one uses mm-hmm. this except the homophobes right why can't we use the proclamation all these people with the proclamation on their wall in their home why not use it against racism it's a compelling point man and I admit, I've never looked at the proclamation in that way. And I think it's the fact that if you look at it from the margins, you see things that are there that no one else notices. We're not resting the scriptures. We're not mm. twisting anything. We just, from our, our, our vantage point, likening the scriptures unto ourselves, see things that other people's mm-hmm. privilege doesn't let them see. Right. Okay. Right. So that's a we've spent a lot of time on the news. Let's uh, <laughs> figure out what we're doing with this. Uh, come follow me. All right. Well, before we get there, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com/podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So with the time remaining, let's go ahead and move into this Come Follow Me and uh, see what we got here. Derek, where would you like to begin? Because I don't have a, I don't think I have anything to say about 13, but would that be a good place for us to start? Yeah, let me just talk a little bit about Alma 13. Here we have a lot about priesthood. And in verses 1 and 2, 
It says, you should remember that the Lord God ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the order of his son, to teach these things unto the people. And the, those priests were ordained after the order of his son in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. There is value in a slow reading of the scriptures. I love looking at the word thereby because it tells us the purpose of priesthood. It tells us the purpose of ordination. It's not for domination, but it's really just to point you to the sun, and that's where you find redemption. Mm. I think there can be a lot of cultural baggage in our church around the, re around the word priesthood. Yeah, People yeah. think that priesthood is some type of magic power or that it works by magic, but the real magic is that it points to Christ, which is the most powerful thing we could ever do. Yeah. And notice, like I said, the wording here is that the priests were ordained in order that thereby— people might know to look toward the sun for redemption. And this reminds me of this, um, this story in Luke. It's also in Mark as well. It reminds me of the, un the apparently unauthorized individuals pointing to the name of Jesus. You've got in Luke 9, verses 49 to 50, these people that the disciples didn't know. They weren't authorized. They weren't uh, ordained within their community, apparently. They weren't sent by Christ or else they would be known. And John mm -hmm. said, you know, Master, we saw these someone casting out devils in your name, and we stopped him because he, he's not one of us. And Jesus said, forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. So I think pointing towards Christ and naming Christ, that's the real power of priesthood. Hmm. And a lot of people make a big deal about lineage and ordination, but that's right. not the emphasis we see in the scriptures here. Right. Because the real power of priesthood is the power of persuasion. And because of that, it completely excludes domination. And that's why we must always speak out against unrighteous dominion, mm -hmm. which is people saying, well, I have this priesthood office. I'm the bishop. I'm a general authority. I'm whatever. Therefore, you must do what I say. But focusing on position rather than pointing to Christ is exactly what Nehor and his followers did. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And this gets into a larger conversation about women and priesthood authority. And I was wondering if be, you were going to say that, yeah. There's going to be women on different sides, and that's that's fully valid for, for women to have different needs and different perspectives. Women are not a monolith in the church. Mm -hmm. But there, we recently our leaders have consistently talked about priesthood power, authority, and responsibility being available to both women and men. Mm-hmm. Women at this time do not officiate in priesthood ordinances outside the temple. But perhaps one day what happens outside of the temple will be made more just like what happens inside the temple. I love what Paul says about the lack of discrimination within the body of Christ, and I'm going to quote from Galatians 3.28. Okay. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And here Paul in the Greek actually changes his conjunctions. Instead of neither nor, he uses not and. There is not male and female, ukeni, arson, kaithelu, which really um, echoes what we have in Genesis one twenty-seven. Arson, kaithelu, male and female, he made them. So what you've got is, a, is this direct contrast to the dichotomy. Uh, uh, and I quoted the Genesis in the Septuagint, which is the 
Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's what Paul and the other New Testament authors writing in Greek were using okay. when they weren't using the Hebrew. So Paul has all these these dichotomies, you know, male and female, slave and free, and then there's not male and female. He says there's not the exact thing that Genesis one twenty seven says there is. And I think that's so profound that we have this mosaic of different voices in the scriptures that speak to different things. Mm-hmm. And in the end, my point is that there shouldn't be discrimination in the church. There should not be discrimination against race or, or gender mm-hmm. here. And that gets back to the real power of priesthood. Like what can people do if they're not ordained to a priesthood office or if they're not... Um, or if they're not like quote high enough in the church, and we've I've talked about it, it's not higher, it's wider anyway, right? In terms of authority, but the real power of priesthood is what everyone has. It's it's the ability to persuade. If a priesthood holder says something, anything that is racist or sexist or homophobic, no matter how wide their authority is in the church, it has no authority. Mm-hmm. Paul points this out in Galatians one verses eight and nine. That what priesthood leaders say, even Paul himself, what priesthood leaders say or do is worthless if it conflicts with the gospel of the equality of all people. The gospel of the equality of all people is the main point of the letter to the Galatians. That's what got him Mm -hmm. so mad. And what happens in the next chapter? (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. And and Paul opposes Peter to his face because of the, the, the real need for purity of the gospel because of racism yes (laughs) because of racism Um, now gospel equality doesn't erase these differences right but it includes people where they are they Mm -hmm. included gentiles on their own terms without making them be circumcised and become Mm -hmm. jews and that's the main message of galatians and we should uh take that to heart and Paul doesn't really elaborate on that there's not male and female. He focuses on the Jew-Gentile distinction, but he doesn't write a whole letter on male and female. And I think it would be very similar if he did. Like, we shouldn't exclude women from anything that our, that God has for any of God's children. Right, especially considering the purpose of the priesthood, as you said. It's to right. persuade, the ability to persuade, direct people to Christ. And that doesn't seem to know any gender or sex. Exactly. And I think the... Uh, you know, Paul starts out Galatians naming his authority. He says, like, I'm I'm an apostle, not ordained by any human. I did not get this from any people. I got this directly from God. He's naming mm-hmm. his authority. And what's interesting, we've got a we've got a contrast in the letter to the Hebrews. And the letter to the Hebrews really draws out that persuasion is the key. The author of Hebrews is unknown. It's almost certainly not Paul, and we don't know who it is. And we don't know we have no idea what authority the author had other than the power to interpret and apply texts from the Hebrew Bible quoted in Greek to persuade their audience and in fact it's unlikely that the author had any apostolic authority at all because the author said they got their gospel second hand and they were not part of the apostolic group that heard Christ Mm. so I think that's amazing that all they had was persuasion. They didn't even have their name. The authority mm-hmm. of their name or power or position is not anywhere in the Gospel of the Hebrews. So the bottom line is... Watch it be a woman. It could be a woman. There's some scholars who think mm-hmm. 
that uh, that Priscilla, like scholars have argued that Priscilla wrote Hebrews, uh, which could be a possibility. It's un, it's hard to mm. prove. But the bottom line is this. Hebrews is the greatest sustained work of theology in the Bible, along with Romans. And it was written. And we have no idea who wrote it. And it was written without any appeal to the author's own authority. All the author did was expound the existing scriptures. That's it. And now what's the payoff of all of this? Any of us in the church without name, without priesthood, without authority, we can make our case solely on our take on the scriptures. And then, oh, this is beautiful. Watch this. And then have our own writings be considered as scripture by following by the following generations we who are queer or trans or women we can be like the author of hebrews we can persuade and point to christ and we have all the power there is so don't feel defeated don't feel powerless there's hope there's power because you know it's easy when you're right because the truth is on your side mm-hmm. 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 what do you think of all these things Oh, don't ask me, bro. Like, I'm just, I just want to say amen, amen, amen. Like, I, I vibe with everything that you just said. And I, I and I just think it's so beautiful the way you put it. And I really don't want to sully it with my thoughts. And But I'm glad that you always come back to the power of the marginalized. And I think there's something mm-hmm. real there that we can tap into. And we should never be ashamed that we don't have some high, some wider office or we don't have this or that. Now, obviously, we should rectify the injustices. But mm-hmm. until that happens, we still have power. We have right. all the power there is because we have the power to persuade. And let's talk about... Melody ab- Jackson is a great example of that, just to lift yes, that up. Yes, yeah. So let's... Speaking of the, the power to persuade, let's, um, let's get into Alma 14. Yeah. Let's get into Alma 14. The one thing I have to say about Alma 14, verse 7, is, well, here's what it says. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, saying, Behold, I am guilty, and these men, meaning Alma and Amulek, are spotless before God. Mm -hmm. And then he began to plead with them, but then they reviled him. And what I just want to name is that Zeezrom engages in a public confession of privilege and oppression, and he Mm -hmm. names what he did wrong, and he begins the process mm-hmm. of reparation. Mm-hmm. That's something we actually didn't bring up, I don't think. I mean, that's something. That's a word we didn't use when we initially talked about accountability for the church and what we'd like to see them do. Um, I did say specific things I'd like to see them do, like show up to marches, be at our events, be at George Floyd's funeral, uh, just simply show up. But I really like that you use that word reparation because that is in essence what I'm asking for. I'm not just asking for an acknowledgement of the problematic aspects of our past. I want to see the church actively work to undo what they did, to address what they did, and to stand by our side as we fight for a more equitable and just America. That's what I would want to see. That to me is the best apology, and that is reparation. So that's that's the word I was looking for is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to say about uh, Alma 14, I wanted to focus on verses 7 through 11, primarily because there's a myth of uh, Christian discipleship that we have. We've talked about it on the show before, and uh, we've talked about why it's a problem. We've done it with many different stories and situations that we've gone over. We've done it with Nephi. We've done it with several New Testament stories. But it's worth highlighting again for emphasis. The myth of discipleship that I'm referring to specifically is that 
our faithfulness and our obedience to God or to the prophet will shield us from hardship. And that's a super dangerous thing. Just last week, Derek, uh, I think it was, you were talking about how the promise from God that inasmuch as we shall keep the commandments, we shall prosper in the land. And that will be, and we typically interpret that as that we'll be blessed with health and wealth if we do what God says and if we follow the prophet. Right. But in Alma 14, Alma and Amulek are imprisoned and they're forced to watch all the believers, in other words, all the people who have followed the prophet, all the believers in Ammonihah, they either get cast out of the city and stoned or they get violently murdered by being tossed into a fire. Amulek, who is clearly distressed at the sight of this, he begs Alma to use their divine power to save the believers, but that doesn't happen either. And and then they spend many days in prison, Alma and Amulek, they spend many days in prison where they're abused and they eventually get delivered, but they are they do spend a lot of time in prison facing physical and emotional abuse. And I noticed that uh, I was reading and preached my gospel, uh, which is the missionary companion to their learning and their teaching. These are the same verses that are cited by Preach My Gospel in order to answer the question of the soul, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Or why does God allow so much evil in this world? And I don't know that I have a great answer to that. In fact, that might merit at least not one that I can distill into just a minute or less. But one thing we seem to clearly be taught in the scriptures, at least with this story, is that God doesn't promise protection from evil and suffering just because we obey his commandments. That wasn't the case with Abraham. It wasn't the case with Joseph. It wasn't the case with Moses, David, Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, Job, John the Baptist, Stephen, James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of Jesus and Jesus himself. Like we could, there are so many examples of this in the scriptures that I can't believe this myth persists. You know what I'm saying? And that's the only reason I wanted to lift this up is that there is really not a good reason for the myth of our Christian discipleship exempting us from any kind of hardship or evil or suffering to exist. And I just wanted to take a moment to lift that up with this story that is a rather extreme example of that much. Yeah, that reminds me of what Jesus said explicitly to his disciples the night before he died. He said in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. Yes. In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the real mm -hmm. prosperity is being in Christ. Yes. Yes. Is there anything else in 14 that you want to point to before we move on to 15? Yeah, I just want to point out that it's important to name religion as a meaning making because what we have ah. in Alma 14 is this narrative that God let them die. God let mm -hmm. the women and children be burned alive. Mm -hmm. And religion we is is basically we as a community having the power and claiming the ability to make sense out of events. So this is the way Mormon when he's when he's framing this makes sense out of it and he's got the right to do that mm -hmm. But part of the beauty and the challenge of the scriptures is that God lets his children tell the story and So you're gonna you're gonna fold in all of all of these assumptions there and You've got this even in the Exodus story like it's it's named in Genesis 50 that what God what Joseph's brothers meant for evil God meant for good and it was this bigger longer grander Plan that would help feed the children of Israel during a time of famine. So you've got all these ways of saying, well, God let this bad thing happen, or even God mm -hmm. caused it. 
And we have to hold those lightly because what we're realizing is we've got a people who are authentically making meaning the best they can out of what they're doing. What they're saying isn't always spoon-fed directly from God, but it's folding in their own traditions and their own ways of making sense. And some of these ways of making sense are what allow them to sustain pain that they otherwise wouldn't be able to bear. I mean, it's easier to, to bear it when you think that God right. did it to you or when you think that God let right. it happen. And that there's, there's power in that. So I just want to name that. Cool. Thank you for bringing that out. And then, then the other thing I want to talk about in Alma 14 is what the taunting that the G chief judge gives to Alma and Amulek. He says in verses uh, 15 and 16, Behold, ye see that ye had not power to save those who had been cast into the fire. Neither has God saved them because they were of thy faith. And the judge smote them again upon their cheeks and asked, What say ye for yourselves? Now this judge was after the order and faith of Nehor who slew Gideon. Now let's talk about the logic of what this chief judge is doing. He's trying to shame and embarrass Alma and Amulek for a tragedy and devastation that he caused himself. Mm -hmm. Right? It's, it's, this is like really victim blaming. Right. But what I find interesting here is that one of the main taunts that Alma and Amulek get is the same taunt that queer members get. Mm -hmm. The alleged lack of divine intervention. People tease us and say, well, God hasn't revealed any change, and look at what God said, and, and where's your revelation, and so on. Never mind the fact that even if we did have a revelation on this, people still wouldn't get in line, and they would be complaining yep. 40 years later. Yep. But the, the chief judge tormented these people based on their views and then made the claim that they tormented those people because God didn't stop them. Mm -hmm. That's literally the logic that people use to abuse my people in this church. We can get excommunicated or withheld from the temple or, or not have a calling or all these other things. We are mistreated and people say, well, I'm doing this to you because God didn't stop me. They haven't been listening to the still small voice that is telling them to stop. If they would listen to the spirit, even if, if they would think about these issues for like even 30 minutes mm -hmm. in an analytical way, they would realize that everything they believed about my people is wrong. And notice the behavior of the followers of Nehor. They sought wealth, honor, popularity, prosperity, and power over others. They were the ones that were wanting to climb the ladder in society and the mm -hmm. ladder in, in religion. They wanted the power. They wanted the dominion. They wanted the ability to say, look, I have this authority. You have mm -hmm. to follow me. So that's all I had for Alma 14. All right. Now let's go ahead and move on to Alma 15. There's something, and maybe you can help me with this, Derek, but there's something worth lifting up here with regard to allyship. This is in Alma chapter 15, verse 16 and 18, I, I want to talk about briefly. So just the verse, this is after all that mess that happened in 14, obviously. It reads that, and it came to pass that Alma and Amulek, Amulek having forsaken all his gold and silver and his precious things, which are in the land of Ammonihah, for the word of God, he being rejected by those who were once his friends and also his father and his kindred. Poor Amulek has not had a break since letting Alma in his house. Like Amulek preached 
to a very hostile people to lift the voice of an outsider and protect that outsider from being put into jail. He put himself in harm's way to protect Alma, and he gets thrown in jail anyway for many days where he endures physical and emotional abuse, but not before watching every believer in Ammonihah be cast out of the city or murdered. And now he has left behind his wealth and has been rejected by his friends and his family. Like, I think it's fair to say that Amulek is traumatized. Although an extreme example, this can be the cost of discipleship. Many of my uh, white friends during this particular time in our history, they've decided to take more of an active or vocal role in their allyship right now. I don't know if you've noticed this, Derek, but I've noticed so many more of my non-black friends who are speaking up now in this present moment than have ever done so in the past anytime something like this has happened, meaning the, uh, the murder of an unarmed black person. There's so many people who are out here acting. And the reason I bring that up is because I want to make sure people understand what the potential cost of their allyship could be and what is, ex- what is going to be expected of them moving forward. And I don't want to overwhelm people, but I also don't want to be dishonest about what this fight might mean. For Amulek, his allyship, like ultimately, and I don't think this is going to be the case for everybody. In fact, I'm going to say this is not going to be the case for most people. But Amulek's discipleship, Amulek's allyship led him through a lot of trauma. And Mm -hmm. that's unfortunate. But uh, I want people to know that there are going to be costs to allyship there are going to be costs to discipleship one of my friends reached out to me about a week ago and she let me know that her her sister whose husband is a cop uh had basically cut her off for something as simple as saying black lives matter and otherwise using her platform to declare the value of black souls i want to validate whatever fear people may have about how people will review how how people will view you if you speak up or act up for the sake of black lives, for the sake of Christ, because those are both the same. Mm -hmm. It can be scary Mm -hmm. and it can be uncomfortable to say anything or to do anything, knowing that some of your friends or family may react in a less than favorable way, like Amulek's family did, like his friends did, or that they won't want your association anymore. But this is the cross that we are called to bear as disciples of Christ, as allies in the cause of recognizing the humanity of all people, but right now in this moment of black people. Keeping our covenants is not intended to be a comfortable experience. This Mm -hmm. is not what Jesus meant when he said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus came to send a sword, not peace. Like that has application here. We are called as people of privilege to divest that privilege i think is something that you've said before derek for the sake of lifting others up and that's not going to be that may not be a comfortable experience and we have to be willing to embrace that that's what amulek did that's what amulek did when he elected to be an ally last week we talked about how he perfectly modeled allyship and both putting himself in harm's way for alma's sake and also for the sake of lifting up alma's voice but as we can see Uh, in these verses that we're studying right now, that is not always going to be a positive experience. But as we are going to see in the coming weeks with Alma and Amulek's missions and with their preaching, we are going to see some great, great rewards come from that. Yeah, I want to point out something that seeing this through the eyes of the scripture writers leads to an irony. Is And the irony is that, yes, Amulek forsook all of his gold and his silver and his precious things, 
And then we who are allies need to do the same with our privilege. But the irony is giving those things up really is just casting off things that are holding us back from a further presence with God. And, it, and we're casting off things that will distract us from God. And I think that's the power. I mean, that's why white supremacy isn't even good for white people. It's holding us back. Like, obviously, we should end it because of what of the devastation it does for black folks. But it devastates everyone. And yes, sir. giving yes, up sir. our privilege actually get, gets us closer to God. It pushes us up closer against the cross. And in the end, on the final day, it will be worth it. And we will realize that this sacrifice really actually wasn't a sacrifice. It was a blessing. And we got yep. more out of it. Yep. You know, I want to go back to verse 8 of chapter 15 and say something really interesting about what Alma said to Zeezrom. Alma said, If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. And this reminds me of, of something really similar that Paul says in Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. The Greek here is pastopistiona apato, everyone who believes on him. The King James doesn't actually translate the everyone. I think it says whosoever, but there is definitely the the word pas, everyone. Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. And this is a quotation from Isaiah 28 verse uh, 16. Now here's where I'm going with this. A lot of people go through this little covenant checklist sling, like, did you serve a mission? Did you go to BYU? Did you get sealed? Did you get your eagle? I haven't done any of those things, and I am not going to be put to shame. People assume that, oh, you're not sealed. Like, you're going to fall off the tightrope, and you're going to have an inferior experience in the next life. And they assume that I will be put to shame not only in this world, but in the next. But on the contrary, Paul testifies that along with Alma, that the main thing and the whole thing is believing. I trust in the covenant promises of God, even though I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. Mm. But I trust the covenant faithfulness of God's character and that in the end, everything will be set to right. It would be sadistic of mm. God to make those who are last in this life last in the next one too. And that's why I'm so encouraged by the words of Mary's Magnificat, speaking of the future establishment of justice as though it were already accomplished in the past tense. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. So, And this is from Luke 1 verses 52 and 53. So what I'm saying with this is, and with Paul and with Alma, is I am a believer. In the end, I will not be put to shame. I will not have mm -hmm. a deficient story when everything gets revealed. And so how dare anyone look down on me and say, well, you're not married, or you're, you don't have any children, or you don't have this, or you don't have X, Y, Z. I am a believer, and Paul promised on the authority of the scriptures that everyone mm -hmm. who believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's all I have for the Come Follow Me lessons. And I think that's a great place to end. So before we go ahead and move on to housekeeping items and wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. 
The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about the current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes, on Lyceum.fm, or DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That is DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Share us with your friends and neighbors and those who would benefit from hearing us. And definitely thank you guys who have been, I don't know if you saw this, Derek, but a lot of people were sharing uh, our, not our most recent episode, but the episode before. I noticed Mm -hmm. that those numbers were heightened. Like we haven't, broken our average in a while because of this pandemic so like a lot of people aren't listening to podcasts as usual but that one got a lot of traffic and i don't know exactly who's doing it but thank you guys for sharing that episode especially at this time it means a lot to us that uh, you value it that much and uh, i'm i hope it means a lot to those who you have been sharing it with and sharing doesn't mean like it doesn't have to always be asking people to listen to a whole episode you can take some of the teachings that we've presented here take them back to your wards and within five or you know you know a few minutes you can say hey this is what i learned from Derek and james and it speaks to this and that way you can amplify our voices within your ward within your family within your circle of friends without having to ask people to listen to an entire episode and that brings me to the next thing i want to say Uh, For those of you who are not yet aware, we started a glow page in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also improve it in various ways to further our mission to just otherwise make Mormonism accessible to everyone. So if you are willing and able and can throw, you know, a few doubloons our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution, we would greatly appreciate those who contribute anything You'll get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly. You can provide feedback and ideas for the show, access our show notes, well, access our notes, period, our study notes, which is also a great benefit to, to you guys who want to share what you learn here with you know, your friends, your associates, and in your Sunday school classes, and, uh, and a lot more. If you don't got those coins to throw at us, just share our glow page on your social medias and you can still join our collaborator community and enjoy every benefit that we have to offer. You guys can check that out at glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. We want to uh, send a special thanks to our editor, producer, Tamara Kemsley, as well as our transcript editor, Uh, Brother David Doyle, thank you guys both for all that you guys are doing for the show. Derek, did I miss anything or No, I think that's it. If there's nothing else, till we meet again next week.